Welcome to Power to Speak, the podcast. I'm Jackie Goddard, and it's my mission to help people market themselves effectively and show up powerfully for their audience by using their voice and their story to share their message and ideas. Not only does the podcast allow me to talk to interesting, inspiring and successful individuals, but it gives me and you, dear listener, the opportunity to learn from the best. Whether business or thought leader, entrepreneur or author, what's been their journey and how have they used their voice and their story to create that success? My podcast guest this week is the amazing Jerry Clark. Jerry is an international communications consultant and has produced over 350 films. He's an entrepreneur, educator and co-founder of the World Happiness Project and Global Happy Cafe. I could have talked to Jerry for a week about his amazing career, life and loves, but I had to be satisfied with just 50 minutes. There will be a sequel, but for now, enjoy. Welcome to Power to Speak, the podcast. And today my guest is Jerry Clark. And Jerry Clark is a retired chairman of international corporate communication companies, including AgriVisual, Video at Work, Video Newsreel, and virtual media. So welcome, Jerry. Thank you so much for coming today. Well, thank you, Jackie, for inviting me to your Power to Speak podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure. So tell us a little bit about um, these sort of these video companies that you started. I'm, I'm particularly in, intrigued as to what is AgriVisual. Right. Well, I, I started out in life as an agricultural botanist. I have a degree in agricultural botany. And I went overseas to help develop uh, agricultural projects in Africa and the Caribbean. And I soon recognized there was a need to teach farmers how to grow more food. So I, when I came back from the Far East, I set up a company called AgriVisual, and we set out to make films to teach farmers how to grow food and improve their lifestyle. And because of the development of technology we moved from video from film production through to, to video and now to, to social media so the brands that I created as businesses because basically I guess I'm a, an entrepreneur as well uh, to reflect the technology that we use now I use virtual media technology to create programs um, and communicate with people in many different fields. So that's how I've evolved those names of the companies that I run. Wow. So tell us a little bit how that how that came about then. I mean, it's that it's that kind of juxtaposition of botanist and video mm -hmm. production. The, uh, how did that come about? So tell us, tell us a little bit about the the, the botany side of things. Where did because I know you you grew up not far from where from where I did in North London. Indeed. So what where did the interest in botany come from? Well, I guess it evolved. Um, I grew up, as you mentioned, in London after the war, and in order to escape the urban jungle and the bomb sites, I joined the Scouts. The Scouts gave me a great insight into leadership, into making friends, friendship, and developed interest in outdoor pursuits. Um, and consequently, when I was looking at a university to go to following school, I, I opted to go and study agriculture and botany in North Wales. And North Wales, as we all know, is a great place to, to visit. You've got the mountains, you've got the sea. Uh, they speak Welsh, which makes it almost like a foreign country. Um, so I went to, to Bangor, and when I graduated, 
I was then offered a job with the Commonwealth Development Corporation. And I was sent to Africa to help develop agricultural projects in Southern Africa. And again, I recognized there was need to teach people how to do things better. So uh, AgriVisual came out of that. Um, and then over a period of time, I moved from filmmaking into video production and applied the knowledge and skills that I had in, in telling stories and informing, motivating, inspiring people through film uh, to use video and web TV and those sorts of technologies. Yeah. So were you were you sort of pioneering in that way? Did you? Well, you I think so. Yeah. I, I mean, of all this. I guess I'd like to think of myself as a, a, a pioneer. I would try out new technology to see if it improves what I do. Um, and there are so many years ago, I made a, an hour long film all about the social computer. It was one of the Faraday films back in the 70s. And I discovered all sorts of fun things that you could do with computers. You just had to apply that, that uh, technique to solve problems or whatever one was doing in life, whether you were managing a company or promoting a product or generally entertaining people, that the computers have a great role to play. And I saw the potential and I've always harnessed the power of technology to do that. So, so the precursor of the social media that we see today, do you th is, that, is that what you're saying? Well, yeah, I guess then? so. I was writing, producing web TV programs back at the beginning of this uh, century. Um, I had spent um, several years making programs for BT. Uh, I launched something called Network BT, which was like a, a video news magazine all about the latest technology. And BT said to me, would I like to produce a program to explain the internet, how it works and what the importance of the internet will be to staff and to customers? So during the course of my research, I discovered that if I could learn to type, I could create my own emails. And if I could send, create my own emails, I didn't need a secretary. And if I didn't need a secretary, I didn't need an office. So I sold up and I moved to the south of France because I used <laughs> the technology to create a new way of doing things. And I launched virtual media. And I still employed, or I still had working relationships with the people that worked for me, but they became freelance, independent. They worked from their uh, place of living. I lived in France and we carried on making films in a virtual virtual world yeah. uh, and it was very successful and what year was that uh initially it was 1998 i right. just made a program about deregulation of, of uh, telephone networks in the in europe um and then i found a, a place down in the south of france just outside nice and in those days you could fly to nice quite quickly and quite cheaply and it was a good place. It was no further away from London than, say, Edinburgh. So yeah. I, I was able to live in the south of France and commute to London to produce and direct films on location in the UK. Yeah. And so what, what were those films then that you were directing and producing? Well, <laughs> my background is in agriculture, and perhaps we'll come back to that later on. But I ended up making a lot of programmes for the government and for the airlines on security. Aviation security became a big problem after the um, hijacks in the Middle East and the IRA issues in London, bomb threats. And I became uh, an expert in producing programs to create better awareness of how to protect our buildings, our companies and people. 
um, we dealt with bomb threats, the potential of bomb threats at Heathrow, for example. Um, I went out to the Middle East to film on location, attempted hijack of an aircraft, and we, we blew it up electronically uh, with digital CGI techniques, and it was very effective, very impacting. Uh, but we, we, we majored in aviation security, and hence I ended up making programs for the government dealing with um, bomb threats and, and technique, technology that you, we now use and find common at, at airports. Yeah. Um, I remember on one occasion we were filming airside at Heathrow in Terminal 4 and it was a story about a, a terrorist cell that were placing a bomb in the 747 and we had a couple of actors, film crew and a few props um, as we approached the the um, April, uh, the, the airport apron, we were asked to pull all our equipment through uh, an X-ray machine. And what I didn't realize is the fake bomb was so realistic, they spotted it in the X-ray machine and said, what, what's that? That looks like a bomb. And uh, the guy who was with me, who happened to be a British Airways employee, and he was Irish, said, oh, no, it's not a bomb, it's nothing to do with us. And of course, they, they panicked. They hit the panic button, and within minutes, we was surrounded by armed police and military, and we rushed off to the airport uh, uh, police station to <laughs> account for our activities. We had permission to do this, but that authority hadn't been passed down to the people on the X-ray machines at the yeah. security gate. Oh no, they didn't get the memo. No, it's a very sensitive area. You remember? Yeah, um, absolutely. Bomb attacks. Uh, at Terminal 4 just before that, and we got called in to make a program to create better awareness amongst staff of yeah. the need to be vigilant. Yeah, um, yeah. I so mean, that, as I was, I was living yeah, in London big growth at that area. time. Yeah, I was, I was living in London about. at that time, and there was, you know, the bomb threats going off. I was in Knightsbridge when the bomb went off at Harrods, yeah. and yeah, so it was, there was, there was a lots of, of uh, yeah. Indeed, yeah. yeah. And we ended up making another program for Eurotunnel. At the time when Eurotunnel was being developed and built, uh, there was concern that the IRA had made threats to blow up the tunnel under the channel, be a huge publicity coup. So again, I was called in by Alistair Morton, chief executive of Eurotunnel, and said, look, we've got a problem, how can you help? So we put together a dramatized story about an IRA cell. Uh, we filmed on location in the railway sidings at Didcot, um, we did it at night, so it looked so it could be anywhere. But we created a, an, an impression so realistic that when he saw the program, he said, you can't show this to our staff. They won't want to come work here. <laughs> anyway, we managed to water it down a bit. But it was, again, an illustration of how effective films can be to yeah. tell a story, um, to dramatise something. To change people's attitudes and that's really i guess what I, i've been doing for the last few years started yeah. out in agriculture but it ended up in in all sorts of new technologies that we are very familiar with these days yeah i mean you know i, I always ask my guests sort of three simple questions sort of to get me uh, give me an idea of what to talk about and and you've sent me over two pages you have had such an amazing career i mean let's 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 step back a little bit i really would like to find out more because 
where you started and where you've ended up is just, I mean, there's such a breadth of, of information in there. Um, and I'm just being nosy, really. But that that boy back in London, uh, in sort of the bomb... In the scouts, yeah. In the scouts and, you know, you know coming, coming out of the war. I mean, I'd say I grew up in London in the 60s and the 70s. Um, and, yeah, we used to play on the bomb sites. They used to call the bombies. Mm. They used to call them um, mm. places where bombs had dropped, and then they hadn't rebuilt anything. They'd just sort of left it. So, uh, so what was what was that like back then? And and what what did you want to be when you grew up? Well, it was a bit like the Bash Street Kids out of the <laughs> beach, I think. Um, yeah, I, I wanted to travel. I, I think I wanted to escape the um, urban environment that had been badly damaged after the war. Um, and I said. I went initially to University of North Wales, but whilst I was there, I was offered a summer vacation job working for the Canadian government. And that meant flying over to New York and taking the Greyhound bus across America. And I ended up in southern Alberta on an agricultural research station. Uh, and after that, I went down to California. And it opened up my horizons to the big wide world there to be discovered and conquered. So... When I came back to the UK, um, I finished my degree and I joined the Commonwealth Development Corporation. It took me overseas again to see, see the world, which I've always enjoyed doing. I travel a lot. I enjoy traveling. Well, I'm getting a bit old these days and I can't hack queuing like cattle to board a plane. That's a nightmare. And I imagine these days that going through airports with the COVID security arrangements, it's even worse. Uh, so that's, that's how I got started on that. Yeah. There wasn't a part of you that said, right, I want to be an explorer. I mean, I, I, I seem to remember you saying that David Attenborough was a bit of a, an inspiration for you. Yeah, I guess I watched television growing up in London and I saw people like David Attenborough doing Zoo Quest and discovering animals in African jungles. I think, hey, this looks fun. Um, and that was perhaps a dream. Uh, but I, I did manage to get to visit many places to make films. Um, but I always dealt with people rather than animals, uh, people and plants, I guess. Um, so, you know, a lot of the stories I've created, and I've written and produced several hundred films and videos in my time, they're all designed to motivate, inspire, educate, promote, train, teach people new skills. It's a communications life, I guess, yeah. a life of communications. There you go. Yeah, amazing, amazing. So, so you do write the scripts as well, do you? For the well, I used to. <laughs> um, yeah, I enjoy writing. I, I wouldn't say it's what uh, I want to do all my life. Um, in fact, I have changed the way I do things. I, I spend more time writing and directing than actually going out and doing things. Um, yeah, sorry, I got lost yeah. there. And, and no, no, I, I mean, is it the discipline between um, documentary making and dramatizations? Is it very different? I wouldn't have thought so. I mean, you need to create an image in somebody's mind, whether they're watching a film or looking at a photograph or reading a magazine. I, I have a very visual um, memory, and images mean a lot to me in the way you compose the picture, the content. And filmmaking just takes that concept of an image and embellishes it, adds sound, adds commentary, 
as music. Uh, music's a great way of creating an atmosphere. Um, you remember the John Williams Star Wars theme? Well, that music yeah. helped me launch a whole series of training films for Massey Ferguson in Africa because I used the soundtrack of John Williams' Star Wars, bringing tractors from outer space and landing on a field in, in Africa and going to work to help farmers grow more food for their families. It was the music that inspired people. So it's a combination of visual, music, and good script writing. But a story can tell its, it can make its own story if you've got the right images in the right sequence. Yeah. So that's something I would certainly recommend. Yeah. And so the the video making then did it did that because I know you went to Africa and were teaching farmers how to farm, um, and you you've used that wonderful quote about teaching a man to fish. Yeah. Well, that's a parable. I, I learned early in life, um, you can give a man a fish and he can feed his family for a day. But if you teach a man to fish, he can keep his family alive for many years. Um, so that is really encapsulating the concept. You teach people to do things better. You cascade information down through a community. Um, and when I was uh, out in the, the Caribbean, I actually went back to university in Trinidad, uh, I did a master's in communications. And I looked at the way in which farmers received knowledge and information about new products. This was in the days before television, before social media. Um, and most of them would read stuff, but not many people could read and write. And then we used radio. So it's a question of finding a way to get that information into the community. Uh, and one thing I was quite proud of, I, I lived and worked in Swaziland for four years, that's in Southern Africa. And the company I worked with, uh, which was a subsidiary of Commonwealth Development Corporation, um, decided to present the king of Swaziland with a mobile public address system so he could communicate with his people, which I thought was a great idea. So they asked me to help design and build this unit. So I, I found a, an old um, Ford Transit and put some speakers on the roof and a PA system and it worked beautifully and i was invited to go to the royal palace in swaziland to present the unit to the king i was work, working with his scriptwriters and soothsayers and I, I was invited to the palace which in fact was a whole bunch of grass huts the, the royal corral in imbaban and the custom in those days was the king always had to be above everybody else and he was sitting on a huge throne, beautifully carved ivory with gold inlay and lion skins and a headdress behind the throne. And we had to sit below him, below his feet, sitting on little elephant stools, which are, <laughs> was a bit painful, but that's how it worked. Um, so afterwards, we I demonstrated to the king how it all worked. And of course, they were delighted. Not only could he talk to his people, he could be a DJ. <laughs> he could play music. It was a, a deck there and he could play music. So they, they use it as a party wagon after that. Um, but sadly, I, I heard later on that um, uh, they'd had a terrible fire and a lot of things were damaged. Um, so I guess the moral of the story is people in grass houses shouldn't stow thrones. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Very good. Oh, that's amazing. That's amazing. And, and so tell us uh, how you ended up being a banana plantation manager and was that, I mean was that before was that before <laughs> are we well, going back joining 
the Commonwealth Development Corporation, CDC, as I, well, I used to call it, the Colonial Donkey Company. Um, we were sent out as young English um, managers to go and help develop to develop parts of the world where the Commonwealth was active. Um, and they had plantations in the Caribbean, in St. Lucia, Dominica. Uh, and I was offered a post to run uh, a plantation there for a year. And I had a, a thousand acres of tropical rainforest. I had a staff of about 150, um, a fleet of trucks, vehicles, tractors, and so on. And I was responsible for the welfare and health and, and the employment of all these people. Um, it was interesting. Some of the workers on this state were descended from the Caribbeans. I didn't realize before I went there that the Caribbeans were, were the people, the, they were the indigenous tribes of the, the West Indies. When Christopher Columbus arrived, um, all the, the Caribs welcomed him. Uh, I'm not sure why, but at the time he was uh, welcomed. Um, and the Caribs had their own reservations, and we had. Um, yeah, they were a pretty wild bunch. I mean, you know, 20 years before I went there, they were cannibals. They had been eating each other. In fact, our, our nearest neighbours were missionaries. Missionaries, we had a Roman Catholic missionary and we had a Baptist ministry and they were trying to convert these wild Carib people into uh, civilised uh, human beings. Uh, but we did have issues. I mean, I remember one occasion we sent the wages truck into the main town to pick up the wages for the staff and um, it, it failed to get back. Um, I wonder what the hell happened. So we sent a search party and they discovered the Caribs, they created a gang and they hijacked the wages truck. They cut down a huge forest tree across the road uh, when the truck screeched a haul. These little guys came out with bows and arrows and blowpipes and proceeded to, to grab the money and rush off into the forest. Yeah. Um, a long while before the police arrived. In those days, the flying squad were on bicycles, so that didn't help. But they did find them, and uh, the gang were all um, in a local beer beer hall, um, absolutely stoned. Uh, so we got some of the money back, and we had to fire a few people with misbehaviour. Uh, so are they do, do they are they still there in the West Caribbean? Oh yes, very much so. Yeah, they're very integrated into um, the, the community. Um, Dominique is an unusual island. It's it's called the Switzerland of the Caribbean. It's very mountainous. It has a rainfall of over 200 inches a year, which is significant. And of course, we had, it's in the hurricane belt. And when I was there, we did have some strong wind. We didn't actually have a hurricane, but um, it was quite a wild place to, to live. And yeah. these people lived in the bush, uh, a lot of them in, in grass huts again. Um, but they were friendly people but they had yeah. fairly primitive ideas. Yeah. I mean, it's it's one of those places in the world that is, it unfortunately does suffer from the weather, doesn't it? You know, it can be quite extreme. Yes, that particular island, it, it is a, a rainforest, and by nature it, it requires a lot of rainfall to make the forest trees grow. Yeah. It's yeah. somewhat similar to another project I was involved with in the Philippines. Um, after I left CDC, I was offered a job with the World Bank to become a, an agronomist on a mission to look into the development of a, an island in the Philippines called Mindoro. I was out there for about eight weeks doing a survey, interviewing farmers about their lifestyle and so on. And these guys were very primitive. 
I mean, they used to use pieces of carved bamboo to send messages. <laughs> no, uh, no internet in those days. But if they want to send a message, they cut it on a piece of bamboo and they got a runner to go through the forest to deliver it to the next village. That, that's yeah. how it was. Yeah. When, whenabouts was this? What what sort of? Time this was, was this? in 1975, 76. My daughter was born. Um, whilst I was out in the Philippines. Uh, so I didn't see her for three or four months. But wow. uh, anyway, yeah, it yeah. reminds me of the date. Yeah. Yeah. So were you making films at that point? Was that? No, um, I was, I just left CDC because um, I was offered a better job at the World Bank. And whilst I was out there, I, I discovered that the um, advertising agency, J. Walter Thompson, were heavily involved in publicizing marketing and promoting technology direct to farmers. They were using radio broadcasts and all the razzmatazz of PR, T-shirts, funny golf hats, umbrellas, all that sort of thing. And I thought, gosh, this, and it was actually working. It helped promote the green revolution, which was the, the, the theme in those days that helped feed the nation. So when I came back to the UK, following uh, finalizing my report, I decided to start my own company, which is Agrovisual. Um, in order to use new communications technology to help promote uh, things to farmers. Um, and so yeah, the first film I made was about an irrigation system, but I very quickly got involved with some of the agrochemical companies, companies like Shell and ICI. One of the films I made for ICI won an award, which was uh, a great feather <laughs> in our cap because we weren't thinking about rewards, but it was very effective in promoting uh, crop production in, in Nigeria. But going back to Shell, Shell asked me if I could advise them on communications to um, ensure the safe and effective use of their pesticides. So I had an office in Nairobi and I was working in Lagos as well. So I traveled quite a bit around Africa. And the, the role there was to help promote um, the, the safe use of their chemicals, um, which I found a fascinating story. And I spent a lot of time out in, in the bush in rural areas. Um, and that grew into quite a big contract with Shell and then with other companies wanting to do similar things. Yeah. Um, was it, when it, when was it that you actually climbed Kilimanjaro? Well, that was a few years later. Um, we managed to um, secure a contract with the European Union to help coffee farmers increase the production and the quality of their coffee in Tanzania. Um, so I had a uh, had staff, had an office and staff out in Kilimanjaro area over a period of two years. So I decided one of my ambitions was to climb Kilimanjaro. So I said to the guys, anybody want to come with me? And we, there were 28 of us set off to climb the, to the top of Kilimanjaro. Most of those were porters carrying all our beer because we obviously made a film. We actually made a TV commercial there as well. I was dressed as a gorilla drinking coffee. It was a fun thing to do. But uh, also, um, we had a, I enjoy what I do and we, because we had the cameras. We did a little sequence and claimed a, a Guinness World Record for driving the golf ball from the highest point of, of the world, um, which I thought confident they would accept. But uh, when I applied or sent the, the footage and details, they said, no, it doesn't qualify because you couldn't prove where the ball landed. It was somewhere in the bush, <laughs> several thousand feet below the high point. Oh, nice try, though. Nice try. Mm. Um, and how, how long does it take to climb Kilimanjaro? 
seven well seven days there and back wow um not because it's a great distance it's i guess 35 miles but because you need to adjust the body needs to adjust to the altitude and a lot of people try and get up there and back in two or three days and they don't succeed but we spent six days climbing um and spent nights in huts on the way up we eventually got to the very summit not everybody gets to the very peak of kilimanjaro uh, they, they get to a lower place called uh, Gilman's Point. But the peak is called Uhuru, which means freedom in Swahili. And I managed to put a Union Jack up there <laughs> and took some photographs. Yeah, we had a good time. So does that mean, uh, that mean England, uh, Britain now own Kilimanjaro? Oh, hmm, political question. Uh, <laughs> no, I, <laughs> I don't suppose it survived very long. But I remember when we got back down, we, we came back down in a day. That's how quick you can descend how uh, we then took a flight from kilimanjaro airport back to schiphol i think in holland um and i spoke to the crew as i boarded this klm jet and told them what we've been doing and they said oh great we'll we'll fly around the, uh, the summit so you can take a photograph so we've got this wonderful photograph uh, of the summit of kilimanjaro covered in snow yeah, but yeah. i couldn't couldn't see the union jack pretty blown yeah. away already oh amazing amazing we're not ending here just taking a quick break to remind you that you are listening to power to speak the podcast with my guest jerry clark we'll be back with jerry after we hear from our friend fellow podcaster and master of verbal communication andrew thorpe we're all in the persuasion business whether that's pitching to a potential client selling ourselves in a job interview, or convincing a teenager to tidy their room. How we frame our message and how we deliver it makes all the difference. And this is the theme of my podcast, Leaning Forward. I'm Andrew Thorpe. I'm a speaker, a trainer, and a storyteller. And I'd love you to tune in to our latest episode. So then how, how did you, sorry, I mean, there is so much, there's so much to talk to you about that, that I just, I want to cover everything um, because I have uh, an interest with what I do um, and, it, you know, power to speak and people's, commu- you know, communication is, is what I do, helping people communicate. Yeah. And I, I'm hoping to work with somebody on training films for, for corporates. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's something that you again almost pioneered. That you kind of yeah, stepped yeah. into that arena of uh, yeah. You've obviously done your research. Yeah, I mean, if you people remember the days of video arts, which was John Cleese's yes. yeah. um, production company producing training programs uh, using actors. Well, we tried to do the same thing um, with dear old John Chalice, who was Boise in Only Fools and Horses. Yeah. I cast him as a uh, and slightly unscrupulous insurance salesman. And it was all about the, um, the story of data protection. And we we made the film, cost me, I don't know, in those days, 10,000 pounds to make, but we spent another 10,000 pounds promoting it, publicizing it, uh, buying adverts in Management Today and magazines like that. Um, so the total cost of production is about 20,000 pounds. But because we were selling it, um at sort of five pounds a copy or what it was in those days we never got to cover the cost so i decided mm. this this wasn't for me no. i always concentrated on making films for a, an audience a, a, a bit of a narrow cast approach 
and I knew that we were going to get paid so I could pay the staff. I mean, in those days, I was employing 28 people making films. We had five cutting rooms and we were churning out 20 or 30 documentary films and then videos a year. Um, and at the end of the month, we had to pay people their wages. So we had to make sure the income was coming in to, to cover the, the costs of uh, production and delivery. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just just looking back, I mean, now kind of retired to the South Coast and you're, you're sort of, uh, before we move on to what it is that you're doing now, which again is, is amazing, um, what, what, what was the favourite part of, of your career? up to that point <laughs> well i guess meeting people i really enjoy meeting people like uh, meeting you and perhaps meeting your audience discovering how other people enjoy their lives you know what what makes people tick um because i'm a creative i tend to favor people with artistic skills whether it's music or sculpture or painting or some other creative activity that i find interesting it's something i've picked up later in life um I enjoy travel, but with COVID these days, that's not so easy. But thanks to the internet, thanks to the virtual reality worlds that we can create, we, we can actually keep in touch with people. Yeah. I was um, on the Zoom call a couple of weeks ago with um, a chap called Victor Purton, who's an optimist. He runs the Centre for Optimism in Melbourne. So we were able to have a long chat about optimism, happiness and well-being. Uh, but I didn't need to travel to see him. We could just do that online. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're obviously a very creative person yourself. I mean, that's that's quite obvious in what in what you well, do. Yeah, I I I have a sort of um, a Damien Hirst approach. I pull a team together. Yeah, you know, when you're making a film, you've got to think about filming it. You've got to film about recording the sound, recording the music, uh, creating graphics, titles, and so on. And then you've got to publicize it, and then you've got to deliver it. There are many skills. Well, I have knowledge, a little bit of knowledge about everything, but I'm not an expert in any particular area, which suits me because I can bring a team together. They've got the skills. That's why I created virtual media. Virtual media is a good example of how you can create a, a virtual team, thanks to the internet, thanks to the ability to communicate instantly to people. You can get uh, a cameraman to go and record a piece in London in this morning you can then get somebody else to write a script and get somebody else to do so it's create it's the use of the the internet to bring people together uh, and that's but what I, I, I absolutely believe that that is creative that that to me i mean i don't know if you have a definition of creativity but for me it's about uh problem solving and i mean i i i asked my dad bless him who's um obviously a stuntman um what was his definition of creativity and he just said it's doing and I think, and when he first said it, I was like, well, no, get real, Dad. It's not about just doing. Yeah. But it, but it is, it is that kind of just taking well, action. Yeah, it is doing. It's creating, also. Yeah, it's, it's sort of creating um, and problem solving and risk taking and all of, all of those things. Yeah, well, it's all of those things. But it's also, for me, it's expressing yourself. Mm. Yeah, we all have views and opinions. And if you can do that in a creative way, you can entertain, you can inform, and you can inspire people. I, I like to think that a lot of the work I've produced, I mean, of the 350-odd films that I've been involved in making, we've reached an audience of 500 million people. A, a huge number of people around the world have seen the film, but they're not in the entertainment arena. They're not broadcast programmes. They're, they're programmes to help people do things better. Yeah, yeah. 
And it's, am it's amazing. So let's move on now, mm. talking about creativity and, yeah. what, you know, what, we met basically because of the Global Happiness Cafe, which is something you started. Right. Yeah. And I, I came in and did a, a talk on creativity. Mm, it's excellent. Um, yeah. Very and, inspirational. Yeah, because for, for me, creativity is who I am and it's what makes me happy. It's what I do to for my own well-being, for my own happiness. And I think it's something that uh, playing and playfulness that, it, that comes with creativity, everybody should continue doing you know through adulthood and I think you know it kind of gets squashed somehow through through secondary school and and people starting careers that they think they should do and, and living a life they think they should and living to expectations and so that kind of happiness and creativity kind of gets lost in all of that and what you're doing now is really trying to bring that back and bring that to the fore so tell us a little bit about the world happiness project well I came up with a vision to increase happiness and mental health, improve mental health and well-being um, as, a, as a worthwhile exercise. And I met Chris Croft, who is a local entrepreneur and um, management trainer, and uh, we got together and created, we launched the World Happiness Project. And our vision was to create a television series or a video stream to show people how they can adopt new ideas to promote happiness, to increase their happiness. Um, and we're still hoping to get a commission to produce a series which people will find entertaining, interesting, and informative. I think there's a program to be made. I've never seen anything on television about happiness per se. Um, it's always about other people's problems, but I think a program which shows how to adopt a happier lifestyle would, would be very worthwhile. In order to achieve that, we, we've launched a couple of ideas. We Last year, we got very close to launching the first national happiness and well-being conference here in Bournemouth, um, which was to showcase the actions and interventions that can improve people's happiness, whether it's in the home, in the community, or the workplace. And we partnered with Bournemouth University and BCP, that's the Bournemouth Christchurch Pool Council, uh, and we had everything set up to run a weekend conference at Fernbarrows, the Bournemouth University campus last year. But sadly, it was the first day of lockdown. So we had to postpone that. I'm hoping maybe next year we can revisit that. But we have moved on a bit. I think live events, conference events may be a little more tricky, although I'm interested to see a lot of live music events now and theatres beginning to get back together in, in London and theatres. So it may be possible. But in the meantime, we, we came up with the idea of creating an online um, global happy cafe. Uh, now, Happy Cafe is just a, a way of getting together with people, like-minded people, to talk about things. And, and we we decided to run a monthly meeting online. Um, we started out talking to people um, about happiness, what happiness meant to them. We now have over a 1,000 subscribers worldwide, and we've got people in Europe, in South America, in Africa, and uh, in Australia who meet regularly to talk about what makes them happy. Um, and we're creating better awareness of, of things you can do. And we're working very much, very closely with the Action for Happiness uh, organization, 
they're one of the leaders of the global happiness movement um, and they came up with some of the 10 keys to happier living um, and they got this um, I suppose a mnemonic called great dream now great dream stands for G for giving R for relating E for exercise A for awareness and T for trying something out and dream D is for direction in life R is for resilience being strong um, E is for emotion, looking for what's good in people. A is for accepting who you are. We're not all perfect. And M is for meaning. What's the meaning of life? You know, and I find that whole concept very interesting. And my mission, if you like, is to help encourage people to think about life. What, why are we here on this earth? What are we doing? And how can we do things better that we enjoy doing? And for me, happiness is about family, it's about friendships, it's about meeting people, but it's also about nature, it's about exploring the wonderful world that we live in, um, and of course it's relationships uh, in work, business, family. Um, I think we can all learn to be happier if, if we wanted to. Yeah, absolutely. No, more power to you. I think it's, I think it's amazing, it's amazing. I mean, obviously there are um, annual happiness scores around the world and we all you know once a year get to hear you know which which country is happier than the next mm. country and 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 all of those sort of things do you think we should obviously you think we should be doing more but it, are there examples in other countries that we could learn from oh very much so yes i mean being happy is not about money as long as you've got enough to feed yourself and your family um, that, that's probably the most important thing. But happiness is about time. Do you have time to do things which bring pleasure? I talked about work-life balance. And in my life, I migrated from a nine-to-five office job to doing things online. I spend more time doing things that I enjoy. Um, so time is important. Um, money is not a, a big driver in this. So we can go and find different ways of living which increase our happiness. Um, the Scandinavians um, always do well with the World Happiness Report because they have a society which is, tends to be a bit more social, a bit more co cooperative. I think that's what I'm trying to think. Yeah, they work together to do things. And that's, that's good to be involved with others in improving uh, the community. I mean, here in the village where I live, a little village in Dorset, I've come up with the idea, let's work together to put in a, an art trail, a sculpture trail through the village, and let's open it in time to commemorate the Platinum Jubilee of the Queen in June next year. It's to get the community together, to work together and have fun doing it. Yeah. Um, so that's an example of how you can change happiness. But some of our subscribers are, for example, from India, and they Indian philosophy is quite different to Western philosophy, and they find happiness in family and in music. Um, in Japan, again, they have a different religion, and their happiness means different things to people in Japan. In North America, and we have a lot of Americans tuning in now, of course, it's all a bit bright and razzmatazz. The American style is a big noise, make a lot of noise about activities. And in a way, it goes back to the American Declaration of Independence, which um, the main precepts were about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Mm. That is in the American Constitution. 
Um, so in this country, we don't recognize that happiness so as important. And I find in I found in life that to be happy is, is good. You can enjoy your life. You can spread happiness and have a, a positive take on the world. See the glass glass half full rather than half empty. And I, I must admit, I call into question the way news is reported. It's all about doom and gloom. We never feature people's happiness and how they've achieved something. Maybe things are slightly different. We look at sports people who have done good things, but we must focus more on what makes people happy. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. I came along to uh, the media briefing forum that you held last week, week before. Tell us a little bit about that, because you really are trying to get across to the media that, that there's something here that, that could be promoted. Yeah, well, we, we've often felt that people don't recognise the importance of learning how to be happy in life. Um, the media is full of stories about other people's misfortunes, about the, the three C's, COVID, conflict and climate change. Mm -hmm. They're important things, but despite that, you can still be happy if you have a positive outlook on life. So the idea I came up with is why don't we try and show the the influential journalists and broadcast media people who are responsible for determining the news and how it's reported let's explain to them show them what happiness really is get them involved in great dream to understand the basic principles uh, so we launched an online meeting last week uh, we invited over 200 leading journalists, news editors and broadcast media people uh, and explained to them we had, a, had some of the world's leading experts or <clears throat> authorities in happiness. Um, uh, Sir Anthony Selden joined us, um, Lord Layard has written several books and so Gus O'Donnell who is the uh, private secretary to Blair and Cameron. Um, he set up the What Works for Wellbeing organization in London. So they're dealing with happiness and well-being in offices in, in, in business. And we had Tom Morris, who is a, a well-known American philosopher who joined us from the States. And he talked about the American take on happiness and well-being. So it was a series of short presentations to explain importance of happiness why it matters and how we can all be happier in life yeah and and how how um successful do you think that will be at, at persuading well I, mean, I, yes. I, I don't know perhaps we might see a few more programs a few more news items about people's happiness how they've discovered things in life which uh, has increased their um, ability to enjoy life yeah. um like i said why wouldn't you want to be happier if somebody can show me how to be happy, I'll, I'll follow that advice. Absolutely. But you are, I mean, is the is the dream or the ambition with this to actually create a TV show or create something? Well, yeah, I mean, we set out to produce a series of programmes on how to be happy. Um, and I think we, we've come up with various ways of telling that story. Um, but so far, people said, yeah, it's, it's an interesting idea. We don't think it's going to sell papers. It's not going to sell um, the, the audience ratings. That's their view. I think we will find that people will say, this is interesting. I want to learn more. Because if you can discover how people in, say, Bhutan are, are happy with their families and they're very poor levels of income, but they're extremely happy people, um, we can learn something from that. So it's a message that, 
<laughs> we want to get out like a message in a bottle sooner or later <laughs> going to pick it up and say hey this is interesting uh, find me the source of supply yeah yeah absolutely absolutely so tell us then where people can contact you obviously you've, you've put on the screen there uh is that is that where people can find we you? have a website called worldhappinessproject.org well, uh, i have an email address uh the easiest thing to get hold of me is uh jerry at worldhappinesstvproject.org um, I guess you can um, print that out on the screen at some stage. Um, I won't give you my phone number at the moment, but I'm very happy <laughs> to talk to people and listen to other people's ideas that we might develop. Yeah, I'd, I, uh, I've got your website there. I, can people contact you through your website? Is there a... Yes, yes, either through the World Happiness uh, website or my own personal website, jerry.clark at um, .co, you know, Jerry Clark uk i think it is <laughs> yeah yeah it's it's showing there on the screen but i will make sure that there are links to all well, of these uh, all, uh, all of these uh, on, on sort of show notes and things yeah. so that when people um come to listen to this or to watch it they will know exactly where to contact well, i'd be very people. delighted to hear from anybody who has some ideas and suggestions uh and maybe spread the word about how we can all be happier in life it's yeah. about happiness, men improved mental health and well-being. It's a topic which is becoming increasingly um, noted and increasingly used in conversation. Uh, so I'm pleased to see that. Yeah. And so what's your philosophy, Jerry? What's your philosophy going forward in life? Well, I think I said earlier that uh, one of my favourite uh, phrases is we make a living by what we earn. We make a life by what we give. I spent many years of my life, I, I'm a Rotarian, so I've been involved in raising money for other people in society. Uh, I find that very rewarding. So, um, yeah, helping others. Go back to the Scouts. Yeah. Yes, yes. I mean, thank you so much for coming on and talking about all this. You've had an amazing career and an amazing life by the sounds mm -hmm. of it. Just Well, thank you for inviting me, Jackie. I was delighted to have the opportunity to get some things off my chest. I've never done this before. This is a new experience. I tend to well, be behind the cameras, not in front of the camera. <laughs> but hopefully your audience will find it interesting. I think they will. I think they will. I mean, do you have any advice to young people, maybe in the Scouts, maybe going through uni at the moment to, to well, you know, how, how can yeah. they? Do, well, yes, the advice, advice I would give, as I've given to my children and now grandchildren, is do something you enjoy doing. You find a, a career, a hobby, a, a lifestyle that you enjoy and then work around that to, to create income. Um, so that, that's the first thing I would say. And also, go out and make it happen. Don't sit back and wait for it to happen. Be proactive. Um, see opportunities. There's always opportunities. And so, um, yeah, go for it, I think. Yeah, very wise, very wise words. Um, I think next, Jerry, you need to write a book. So put it all I can't down. sit still long enough. That's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, we can start. We can start by what you've what you've given me here. That's you know yeah. that, that there's a there's definitely a, a starting point with that. Words, yeah. But bear in mind, my my work is visual. Uh, for all the words I've sent you, I have tens of thousands of images of my life. Uh, I ran a film company, and within that film company we had two staff photographers so we took a hell of a lot of photographs over 50 years 
um, which one day I'll get down and have a look at again. <laughs> Some, I've still yeah. got many of them somewhere. Yeah. Yes, you do sound like someone I I I know, <laughs> somebody I know very well who has uh, who has over fifty years worth of of uh, photographs, films, yeah. pieces of writing that really need to be. Collected. Well, yeah, the problem I have is that the technology for uh, seeing them, viewing them, has changed. You yeah. know, all the VHS cassettes. I I made video cassettes of all the films that I made when sixteen millimeter documentary films, but I can't play those now. So unless I've downloaded them in, onto CDs, and even CDs you don't get very often no. now, CD players are pretty non-existent, you've got to have it as a digital file. But it means getting everything and then putting it into a new format just to view. And yeah. that, that is a challenge. Yeah, yeah. Yes, it does sound very familiar. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, it's been lovely talking to you, Jerry. Thank you so much for being a guest today. Well, and I will make sure all, all of those links will be there for, for people to see. So yeah, enjoy good. the rest of and a Merry Christmas. And a Merry Christmas to you. I see you've got yeah. the jingle bells up and Father Christmas. <laughs> I hope it brings you something new and exciting. Yes, yeah. I hope so too. And Looking yes, so it's a Merry Christmas to you and yours and enjoy yeah. and thank you for being here. Thank you, Jackie. God bless you. Bye. Oh, many thanks to Jerry for joining me to share his amazing journey and career. Lots of wise words and useful info in there. And I think we can all get behind Jerry's mission to promote happiness around the world. Remember his great dream mnemonic to recap the 10 keys to happiness. From great, G, forgiving, R, relating, E, exercise, A, awareness, T, try something out. And from dream, D, direction in life, R, resilience, E, emotion, A, acceptance of yourself, and M, meaning. What does life mean to you? And Jerry has two fabulous philosophies that I think are worth reiterating. The first one, we make a living by what we earn and we make a life by what we give. And the second, let every man follow the sun and there in the distance he will find his reward. What were your takeaways from our conversation? Connect with me on LinkedIn or contact me through the website powertospeak.co.uk and let me know. And remember, if you, like all of us, are in the persuasion business and need inspiration or tips on the art of verbal communication, then tune in to Leaning Forward with our friend Andrew Thorpe. Find Leaning Forward on your favourite podcast platform. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you heard, then please leave a five-star review on whichever platform you're on. And if you'd like to receive information about future guests or would like to know more about Power to Speak coaching, then sign up for our fortnightly newsletter at powertospeak.co.uk. Bye for now.